Good morning, beloved. If you have your Bibles with you, um, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 32 this morning as we look into God's Word. Uh, and as you turn there, let me offer a brief word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, help us with your Word, we pray. Help us to teach it. Help us to understand it. Most of all, help us to believe it and to obey it, to apply it to our lives and to be changed by it. We are tired of being the persons that we have been. We want to be more like Jesus. So work in us, Lord. Change us. Conform us to his likeness. By your word, by faith we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard it said that looks can be deceiving. That's entirely true. Sometimes things look a certain way to us, but they are not actually that way. We live in a day and age where actually people cultivate looks, right? So the one sort of substantive critique of social media, for example, is that none of us are really our full selves on social media. We curate our profiles. We select certain pictures and certain images. We choose what we will remember online and publicly, and we choose what we will keep private. And so we are seduced sometimes into a public showing of ourselves that isn't the full self. Sometimes even, even isn't even the accurate self. Well, that's been a temptation to preachers and teachers and people in other public offices as well. What you see of us sometimes is well-tailored. It is cultivated. It is crafted so that you don't see the warts. You don't know the weak spots. You aren't able to tell when something that seems really powerful in, say, the preaching of a sermon is actually power or if it's performance. Sometimes we preachers and we Christians live without integrity. Our private selves do not match our public selves. Now, here's the thing about that. That's actually a short leash to live on. Sooner or later, running headlong with a public curated identity will feel the sharp snatch of a leash that's been drawn taut. And so people fall publicly where people fail publicly. And it becomes known that what we once thought was power was, again, performance. One of the things that's most vital for us as Christians, for us as human beings, for us as leaders of any sort, on any level, is that we live with integrity. And here's the key to integrity. That public power comes from private piety. That public power in ministry, in life, in whatever calling you have or I have, that, that the, the public work of power depends on private worship of God. If we are not alone, people who worship God, we will then not be publicly people who do mighty works for God. The two go together. 
the private piety and the public power, the private worship and the public works. And we're going to see that in our text for this morning. Um, as we think about Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 32. And I pray that as we think about these words in God's word, that, that he would give us a, a, a stronger burden, a real zeal to be in private, what we often pretend to be in public. We would have integrity and that our public lives would be the overflow, overflow of our private piety, our private lives of devotion to God. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and went up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. In our time this morning, I want us to think about three factors that rob us of power. Three factors that rob us of power. And I want us to think about three sources of piety that give us power. Three sources or three acts of piety that give us power. Let's start with the three factors that rob us of power. The first factor is unbelief. Verse 14 opens with Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, which we considered last week, uh, and coming to catch up with the rest of the disciples. And in verse 14, the disciples are uh, surrounded by a crowd, and they are arguing with the scribes about something. 
Now, in verse 15, the crowd's happy to see Jesus. They're amazed that he's there. It's like, ooh, there's Jesus. They are rushing over to be with Jesus. Uh, but Jesus wants to know what's happening. And he seems a little bit protective of, of his disciples because he asks the question, uh, what are you arguing with them uh, about? What are you arguing about with them, meaning his disciples? So he seems to be taking uh, over the leadership of the conversation and doing it in a way that protects his disciples like any good leader would do. And this is at this point that a father steps out of the crowd. And this father tells the Lord that he has brought his son to him to be healed. He originally was looking for Jesus, but Jesus, of course, was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. He wasn't there. And so the father, having come this way to meet with Jesus, decides he would ask the disciples to heal his son. And so he does. And the disciples apparently try but they can't heal his son. So he explains all of this to Jesus in verses 17 and 18. And notice how he ends in verse 18. He says, they were not able. They were not able. They lacked power. They lacked the ability to cast out this unclean spirit out of this boy who had been tormented by this spirit. They lacked the ability to satisfy this father's desire to see his son healed. Why was that? Well, I think we get the answer to the why of that in verse 19, when Jesus speaks and he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? In other words, they all, that generation, they all lack power because they lack faith. They were faithless. They were operating in unbelief rather than walking in belief, in faith. And again, this was a problem of the entire generation. This, this was a widespread issue. This was a cultural sin, if you will, unbelief. And notice that it seems to exasperate Jesus. It seems like this continuing problem of unbelief getting on the Lord's nerves. <laughs> he says those two rhetorical questions, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you or put up with you? We see the Lord's humanity in this, don't we? His patience and long-suffering are being tried. If there's one thing that pushes the Lord to the limits of his patience, to the limits of his forbearance, it's unbelief. I'm reminded of Hebrews 11:6, where it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faithlessness is displeasing to God. Not only that, but without faith or with unbelief, we are robbed of spiritual and supernatural power. Now, in the world, faithlessness is given credibility, while faith in God is treated as ridiculous. So Christian, we need to be careful here. We must be careful that we don't seek the unbelieving world's approval and shy away from the truth of the scripture. That, that desire for approval is really quite seductive. It tempts, it lures. 
So we need to be on guard against the ways that the world entices us to unbelief by, by calling it calling itself rational or intelligent or scientific. A lot of Christians are made to feel ashamed or embarrassed because the world talks in ways that gives itself intellectual credibility uh, and at the same time talks in ways that would make the Christian look backwards or ignorant or stupid for believing these things. I mean, a lot of academic theologians read this very passage and they say that this boy was not demon-possessed, but rather he probably was having epileptic fits from the time of his childhood. They argue that demon possession was pre-scientific an idea. That these people who lived before the modern scientific age would have had no conception of something like epilepsy, so they assigned these kinds of diseases spiritual causes. And they believed that um, you know, a demon would have caused this when in fact there was a perfectly good medical scientific explanation. These theologians think rationality and scientific explanation is the only legitimate explanation to the world the way it is. And with that way of thinking, these theologians and, and Christians like them are simply joining the ranks of this faithless generation. Jesus rebukes them here. I mean, think about it. Jesus knows the difference between a natural disease and, and the possession of an unclean spirit. Jesus has been healing natural diseases all throughout the Gospels, and he's never sort of thought, uh, I don't know if that was a disease or if that was a demon. And he's cast out more demons than we can count uh, in the Gospels. Jesus knows the difference between a demon and a disease. How does he treat it? Well, he treats it like what it is. The spiritual oppression of an unclean spirit. And here's the thing, beloved, as a Christian, I'm like, let me side with Jesus rather than side with the opinions of a world that thinks itself wise and has proven itself foolish. Let me side with Jesus and let me side with the people who wrote the Bible, who were there as eyewitnesses, who could attest to what was seen and what was done and who has told us the truth, even when it embarrasses them. The way they tell us right here in this chapter a number of times that they didn't understand everything that Jesus taught. These are honest people giving us honest history. And we don't want to be seduced, beloved, into unbelief by people who will mock this and people who will treat it as incredible. We don't want to start expressing unbelief so that the world can cheer us on. It will do that. But we want to continue in faith so that we have the applause of heaven. That's the first factor. Unbelief robs us of spiritual power. Here's the second factor. Spiritual warfare. The, the second factor can make us powerless in life and ministry as well. Verse 20 ends with the Lord Jesus calling for the boy to be brought to him. Bring me the boy. Now, Jesus is Lord of all things. He's the ruler of all things, seen and unseen, including unclean spirits. Now, unclean spirits are angels that have fallen into sin. They were once holy, 
but they were caught up in Satan's rebellion against God. Satan was an angel too, who rebelled against God, wanted to be God. And he took a third of the angels of heaven with him into that sin. And they became unholy and they ruined themselves in, in sin. And the Bible says they are destined for judgment. Jesus himself says in Matthew 25, verse 41, that eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. The reason hell exists originally is that God is going to cast these angelic beings, these fallen angelic beings, into that place. And now after the, the, the fallen angels rebelled against God, they were cast out of heaven to earth where they now seek to harass God's people and all of humanity. John in Revelation chapter 12 gives us a, a symbolic picture of this. He, he writes there, turn here with me. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That's the fall of Satan. Notice verse 12. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So what we see in Mark chapter 9 with this boy being possessed by an unclean spirit, that kind of demonic harassment, is a particular example of what's happening spiritually since God has cast Satan out of heaven down to the earth. So we are all engaged in spiritual warfare against unseen beings who are, who are evil and malevolent and who oppose God. And sometimes through that spiritual warfare, we are made sick and weak and we lose power. But Mark 9 is also an example of the powerlessness of unclean spirits in the presence of Jesus. Notice how the unclean spirit responds in verse 20 when Jesus calls for the boy. And when the spirit saw him, that is Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Upon seeing Jesus, the demon knows his time is up. The king of the universe is on the scenes. And so he trembles in the presence of Jesus. Now this unclean spirit, basically being the, the bully that he is, notice now he attacks the boy one more time. Now here's the thing. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels that the demons never come for Jesus? They never attack him? When he's on the scene, they tremble, they fall down, they beg, they do all kinds of things, but they never come for him. That's why, you know, when y'all out there talking about don't try me, try Jesus, y'all just practicing some bad theology. Nobody in their right mind tries Jesus, not even demons. They are powerless in the Lord's presence. All they can do is tremble, bow, and obey. They weaken us, but they do not weaken the Lord. Here's a third thing, third factor that sometimes robs us 
of spiritual power, and that's fatigue. When Jesus sees the demon attack this boy so violently, the Lord asked the father in verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? The father gives us a, a short biography and medical history, doesn't he? He says, from childhood. And then he adds this, and it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Now try to imagine the fatigue, the frustration, and the futility that this father must feel. He's got a son, which gives every dad a, a certain amount of pleasure and pride. But this son from childhood has this problem. He is attacked by demons. He is um, forced into convulsions. He writhes on the ground and foams at the mouth. And that spirit tries to kill the boy. Sometimes tries to throw him into fire. Sometimes it tries to drown him in water. So imagine the trauma of seeing your little boy from childhood and for however many years now experiencing this over and over again. Imagine the frustration of not being able to do anything to help your son, to change his condition. Imagine having to keep constant watch on him around water, around fire, where, where everything is made to be a hazard to his life because his spirit would drown him or burn him to death. Parenting is exhausting. Parenting children with special needs is more exhausting. Parenting a child with, who, who is oppressed by an evil spirit, well, that, that's got to be a whole other level of exhausting, of frustrating. And sometimes, like this father, we find ourselves in situations and conditions that, that really far surpass our strength and may even far surpass our spiritual strength. They leave us powerless. If you're experiencing powerlessness in your life, I wonder if one of these three sources might, might be at the root of it. Is it unbelief, like the disciples and that generation that, that Jesus rebukes there for their faithlessness? Is it spiritual warfare that's come upon you? Or is it frustration and fatigue with the battle? Try to get a sense of, if you're in a season of powerlessness, try to get a sense of what might be the, the source, what, what might be robbing you of strength, what might have twisted the plug beneath the oil plant and, and let all the oil drain out of your car. Try to get a sense of that. And then I want you to give your attention to three acts of piety that, that actually give us power, that restore us to power, that that, that gives us the strength of the Lord by which we could live. The, the first source is faith. Notice verse 22. It ends with the dad asking Jesus for help with the words, if you can. Again, we can understand the dad putting it that way, adding that qualifier, if you can. It's a reasonable qualification given his experience. 
He has raised this boy for however many years, and from childhood, the boy has had this affliction, and he has not been able to, to solve it. And he's brought the boy to Jesus' disciples and asked them to heal him, and, and they too have been ineffective, unable to heal him. And so you can imagine that in those failed attempts, he, he, he has sort of been beaten into submission and now adds to this request of resigning if you can. Here's the thing, beloved. Do not think that the failures and the powerlessness of Jesus' disciples is somehow an indication that Jesus will fail and Jesus will be powerless. So when this man says, if you can, it must have hit Jesus' ears kind of funny, right? Because Jesus responds to the man with a challenge. He turns his words back on him. It's not whether Jesus has ability to heal his son. It's whether the man has faith that Jesus can heal him. Jesus has all power in heaven and on earth, but does the man believe? That's the issue. And so Jesus is saying in not so many words, in, in so many words, not if I can, but if you can, if you can believe. And with that, if you can turn back on the man, Jesus reveals a, a heart of unbelief there. He's helping to see the man, helping the man to see that he's not walking by faith, but by something else. Now, we, we need to make a distinction here. Uh, unbelief is not the same thing as weak or little faith. Those are two different spiritual conditions. I want to trace that for you in the Bible. Weak or little faith is still faith. It, it may be battered, it may be bruised, it may be diminished and shrunken, but it is still fundamentally belief in God. And every time Jesus, he has this saying in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, where he sometimes calls his disciples, oh, you of little faith. Now, every time he uses that phrase, he responds to the people, he responds to his disciples positively by either promising to provide for them or performing some kind of miracle in their presence. It occurs five times in the Gospels. Let's, let's trace them real quickly. Number one is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus says there, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Uh, you see, the, the O you of little faith is a, is a mild little admonishment but what he does there is promise to provide for them. Or in Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, where there the Lord says, uh, And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. That's when the disciples were afraid in that sudden storm, and Jesus was asleep uh, in, the, in the head of the boat. What does he do? He performs a miracle and calms the sea and the storms. Or when Peter tried to walk on the water in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Peter saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He's assuring him and providing for him. Matthew chapter 16, verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, 
Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And this is where he had multiplied the, the thousands, uh, to feed the thousands with just a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. You see, every time Jesus calls his disciples, you of little faith, the Lord is giving, yes, a mild rebuke, but he is also recognizing that faith is there, and the Lord responds to that faith positively. Little faith is faith enough to move the Lord, to even move mountains. And that's a different category than unbelief. Unbelief is not weak faith. It is not little faith. Unbelief is disbelieving. It is the absence of faith. Unbelief is in opposition to faith. It rejects faith. And where unbelief is present, where we refuse to trust God and to believe in God, God does not approve. He does not provide. He does not often act in power. So again, let's trace this. Go back to Matthew chapter 13, verse 58. Jesus has been rejected in Nazareth, his hometown. And, and this is what he says as he leaves his hometown. Or what the text says. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Or in Mark chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Again, this is Jesus being rejected in his hometown. And he says this. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And in the end of Mark's gospel, after the resurrection, Mark chapter 16, verse 14, we find these words. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. John chapter 12, verses 36 to 38. Jesus' teaching there says, while you have the light, referring to himself, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Just one more. Hebrews 3, verse 19. The writer of Hebrews says, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He's referring to Israel unable to enter into the promised land and the true rest of God because they rejected Jesus in unbelief. So, beloved, do not confuse small faith and weak faith with unbelief. Unbelief is a hard heart that rejects God and his power and leads to judgment. Little faith still receives God. It looks to God and, and finds God's blessing and encouragement. Unbelief is a sin. Weak faith is not. So we must deal with these things differently. Unbelief requires repentance and turning with genuine faith. Little faith requires continuing in faith. 
And unless we pluck the weed of unbelief from the garden of our hearts, then true faith will ever have a hard time rooting and growing there. Notice the dad's response in verse 24. Jesus challenges him uh, with those words in verse 23. He says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Therein is the power of faith. So powerful is belief that all things are possible to the one who puts their belief in God. Let's see the man's response in verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe he was he, he lost all sense of respectability there. I, 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 he was shouting like a black woman at a Pentecostal church. I believe, help my unbelief. That is repentance and turning to God's grace. He no longer doubts. So he says, I believe, and he no longer pretends. So he says, help my unbelief. Sometimes people try to cover their unbelief with fake shows of faith, pretension. Don't try to fake it until you make it. That's bad advice. Instead, be honest. Ask God for help with your unbelief. This man knows that the problem is in his own heart. He knows he cannot change his heart without the help of the Lord. So he professes a beginning faith, a small faith, a weak faith, perhaps. And he asks for grace from God to defeat unbelief. Really, there are two miracles in this text. There is the miracle of the boy who is healed in verses 25 to 27. But more important than the boy's healing is the miracle of the dad's heart that was changed. Our hearts cannot be changed unless we put our faith in Jesus and call upon him for his divine help. It's faith that moves God to change our circumstances as well as our hearts. Sometimes we keep looking at our unchanged circumstances and we become blind to our slowly changing hearts as a harden in unbelief, and they grow accustomed to disbelief. We keep thinking or telling ourselves that if our circumstances would change, then we would have faith in God's not so, beloved. God is all the while challenging not our circumstances, but he is challenging our hearts. The heart is the more critical issue. Again, our hearts won't change without faith in him. And if our hearts do change, if that's what we want, then, then we have won, even if our circumstances never change an inch. Do you believe that? Do you have that kind of piety? Do you have that kind of faith? Because the first source of public power is private faith personal faith, in God, whether or not circumstances change. Which brings us to our second source of power, and that's prayer. That's what we see in verses 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So the disciples had run into an unclean spirit that was of a different kind. Notice Jesus' words there in verse 29, this kind. 
He doesn't say what kind, but in the context it's clear that there was something different about this unclean spirit. This kind would not respond to the mere words of the disciples. The disciples needed real power to cast it out, but that power in public depended upon piety in private. But piety is a word that means devotion. In this case, devotion to God. And we express piety through acts of piety with a genuine heart. Bible reading, um, church attendance, singing praises to God, and so on. Now in this context, Jesus mentions specifically uh, one act of piety in particular, and that is prayer. And there are some manuscripts that say prayer and fasting. This kind of only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, both of those are private acts of piety, of devotion to God. We are to go into our prayer closets and there intercede. And the Bible says, he who sees us in secret will reward us in public, will reward us openly. And when we fast, we're not to make a big show of the fact that we're fasting, putting on all these airs. Fasting is meant to bring us close to God, so we should not do it for the praise of men. Right? So in those ways, the Bible is exhorting us to a, a genuine, private devotion to God, a warm piety to God. And here's the secret in this text. The power of our public lives is connected to the piety of our private lives. Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. And here's the question. How often are we looking to live with spiritual power while forgetting or forsaking private piety? Doesn't work that way. When we come into contact with a, a, a show enough difficult situation, we get exposed because we've not had this kind of piety in private. Satan and his angels only give up territory stubbornly. They only give it up with a fight. They don't leave just because some people use Jesus' name. I'm reminded of that famously uh, funny passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, where the sons of Sceva are uh, attempting to, to cast out demons. And uh, this, is, this is what we read there. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded, and got their behinds handed to them, preaching a Jesus that somebody else knew, but that they didn't know. See, power doesn't come secondhand. Power comes from a living relationship with the living God. 
That relationship is nurtured by private piety, by reading your word, by praying to God, by singing his praises. Verse 29 teaches us that prayer gives us access to power that can cast out unclean spirits of an unusual kind. How's your prayer life? If you are experiencing weakness in the Christian life, a powerlessness in the Christian life, might it be connected to a deficiency in private prayer? Third source of power. It is the gospel. Our text ends in verses 30 to 32 with Jesus once again teaching his disciples that he must be rejected, um, he must be crucified, buried, and resurrected three days later. This is the third time the Lord has taught them this in barely a chapter. He began teaching this in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He mentions it again in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And here he is just a few verses later, pulling his disciples aside in private, teaching them about what must happen to him in just a little while. The cross is firmly fixed in Jesus' mind. He wants the disciples to understand what is going to happen to him. And he wants them to understand not just the what of it, but he also wants them to understand the why of it, what it will accomplish. Verse 30 says he taught the disciples the gospel privately. This was a part of their personal preparation for public ministry. They needed to consider these things away from the crowd so that they could be effective when they were around the crowds. So this private understanding is meant to lead to public power and faithfulness. The gospel isn't something we hear one day for our salvation and then we leave it alone, never to turn back to it again. We are meant to keep looking into the mystery of the gospel so that we draw power from its truth. You see, the disciples, if they were to know these events, then that knowledge would help them to interpret their lives correctly when the events happen and each day afterward. According to verse 32, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was teaching them. But they were afraid to ask him for clarity. So then when these things happen later in the Gospels, the disciples are wrecked. And some of them want to go back to fishing, go back to their old way of life. Some of them are traveling the road to Emmaus, uh, dejected and discouraged. They, they are scattered. And their whole world is rocked because they, they didn't get this. And because they didn't get it, they couldn't apply it. And we can be like that too, can't we? See, beloved, if, if we lose sight of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and, and lose sight of his resurrection, his rising from the grave in victory, then we will lose connection with that most powerful source of power. So we, we ought not only believe the gospel, but we ought to preach it to ourselves daily. We ought to remind ourselves of it, and we ought to plummet uh, the plummet's depths more and more as we walk with Christ. So we just make an application to reading habits. I don't know what your reading habits are, but I, I, I want to encourage you that in all of your reading, 
that what you would read most frequently are books and articles and blog posts that help you understand the gospel more deeply. This is going to be a source of power, a source of power for interpreting our lives and, 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 and giving us hope in the midst of the most devastating circumstances. This is going to be a source of power unlike any other as we draw near to God in the good news of the gospel. Now, my friend, if you're, if you're not a Christian, I, I wonder how you make sense of your life. There are many times when I experience things that are so bewildering and so painful that I actually think of you. I, I wonder to myself, how does a person who's not a Christian cope with these things? How do you deal? Now, when I say that, I'm not trying to be, you know, kind of a, a proud, arrogant, condescending Christian. I know that we Christians have that reputation sometimes. When, when I say that, I'm saying that fully aware of my life before I was a Christian. And, and fully aware of how I negotiated hard things before I was a Christian. And the main way I negotiated hard things before I was a Christian was by turning away from them and turning a blind eye, blind eye to them and trying to suppress them. I know that Christians, we sometimes get accused of being people who have blind faith. In fact, you might think that's what faith is. It's a sort of a leap off into nothingness, kind of hoping for the best. But I want to suggest to you that between the Christian and the person who's not a Christian, between the Christian and the person who maybe has no religious faith at all, we are not the ones who are taking the blind leap. You are. You're the one who has to encounter life in all of its ugliness and harshness, the destruction of life, the disease, the death of life, um, even the demonic activity. You're the one who actually, in order to get through life, you just keep turning away from that stuff, trying to get it behind you, trying to get over it, trying to suppress it. We have so many phrases for turning a blind eye to things that we can't explain, things we don't understand, um, things that rock us. But the Christian, we looking squarely at it. And we're looking right through it. And we're looking to a God who's more powerful than it all. And we're remembering the message that he's given us to explain life. To explain why there is death and destruction. Well, it's because of sins, because of our sins, because of humanity's sin. That's why people die. That's, that, that's why accidents happen. That's why tsunamis hit, hit islands and devastate islands. Uh, all the evil in the world has its origin in Satan's rebellion and the interest of sin into the world. We understand that. And so we can talk frankly about sin, our sin, your sin, the sin that's out in the world. And we understand our guilt because of sin. In fact, we understand that some people are poorly adjusted to the world because they refuse to admit that they're sinners. And in suppressing that knowledge in unrighteousness, they give themselves over to things that further destroy them. But the message doesn't stop there. We, we're not only sinners, we also have a Savior. God has loved us. He's loved you before the world began. And before the world began, he knew that we would be sinners. He knew that we would rebel against him. And he hatched a plan to rescue us 
to redeem us from sin, to redeem us from a hell that's prepared for Satan and his angels and not for us. And that plan was to send us a Savior, to send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, born of a virgin, which we celebrate at Christmas. But not just born of a virgin, he, he grows up and he lives a perfect life. Imagine that, a perfect life in complete and total obedience to God without one sin. It's because he's the son of God. And he does that in order to satisfy the requirements that God had for you and me, requirements that we had broken, laws that we had broken. And when he had finished obeying God in an earthly life, he gave his earthly life as a ransom for us. That is, he paid the price to redeem us back from our kidnappers. Our kidnappers had been our sin and the world and the devil. And so Christ purchases us with his blood by dying on the cross for our sins. And three days later, he's raised from the grave, just like he kept telling his disciples. And the meaning of all of that is that you and I can be saved from judgment. You and I can be reconciled to God and have a relationship with him and live not in our own power, but in his power, which is at work in us as we believe. And our future? Our future is not what rocks us in this life. <laughs> no, no, we suffer like everybody else. But we don't, we don't cave under our suffering. We don't give up under our suffering because we know that even our suffering is producing for us an even greater glory in the presence of God when we join him in his kingdom. Where there is no death, where there is no destruction, no disease, no suffering, nothing like that that is sinful. Where life is as it's meant to be, perfect in the presence of God, full of joy. What God offers you is that life in exchange for this one. And what he offers you is that righteousness in exchange for your sin. What he offers you is his love in exchange for judgment. Do you believe this? Put your belief in this. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust him as your Lord and Savior and, and allow this gospel, this good news to reshape how you view all of life. To give your life purpose and meaning and direction as you live for the God who made you. Trust in the Lord. Believe in him. And so be filled with and my Christian friend, we get to live like this every day. We live like this every day. This is why private piety is so important and why it's for our joy. This is not duty. Prayer is not merely duty. Bible reading is not merely duty. Hearing God's word preached is not merely duty. Going out and evangelizing is not merely duty. This is how we share in the life of God. This is how we share in the power of God who lives in us and is at work in us. And so when we neglect these things, we neglect the source of vitality and strength of energy and ability and power that we so need to live publicly for the glory of God. And if we neglect these things, then we, we fail to live with integrity, don't we? Particularly if we try to go out and be publicly something that we are not privately. 
And so as we close the 2020, praise God, by his grace, we're closing 2020. And as we look to 2021 and we look to the days and the weeks and the months ahead, um, I want to encourage us, I want to exhort us that if there's any gap between our private lives and our public lives, that we would close that gap. And that we would live with more integrity, more spiritual integrity, being the men and women of God in private that we know we're supposed to be in public. And in allowing our private communion with God to give us victory in the world. Some things only come out by prayer and fasting. It may be that your difficulty in walking faithfully with the Lord is one of those things. You only come out by prayer and fasting. So pray, fast, call upon the Lord in the words of the Father in this text. I believe, help my unbelief, and watch his power work in you and through you for your joy for his glory, for the salvation of the world. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be in private, what we know we are supposed to be in public. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of your gospel, worthy of your name. Help us to do that when nobody's looking. And help us to do that when everybody's looking. And help us to be so full of integrity that we give no thought to whether we are alone at home or out in the presence of others because we experience the freedom of being the same person in either case. And so, Lord, we pray, help our unbelief, free us from the besetting sin of unbelief, give us faith, teach us to pray, help us to meditate fast and hard on your gospel so that we would be shaped by these things and live constantly in fellowship with you. Oh, grant us this, Lord. We so desperately need it. We so desperately need it. Grant this to us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name.